Nehemiah chapter 8. That's where we're going to be today. Going to be spending today in Nehemiah, next week in Malachi, and that will conclude our long journey through the Old Testament as we look at the unbroken story of what God is doing in the world. It's hard to believe a little bit for me that we're almost to Christmas. In some ways, it seems like 2020 has lasted forever. In other ways, it seems like it's kind of just flown by. And so it's kind of simultaneously both of those things going on, um, just been all the change and crisis and all of that we weren't prepared for. And it's all kind of just exhausting, overwhelming at times. And so with all that, if you're anything like me, and hopefully you're not in this case, um, hopefully you don't find yourself always searching for, you know, some sense of control, like you can kind of get your hands around things, your mind around things that are going on, um, because right now it doesn't feel like there's a lot of way to, to do that. And so one of the reasons I'm thankful though right now is for the Christmas season, because it gives us a little bit of a sense of familiarity, even if it's different from what it was like before, right? We can be thankful for the familiar sounds of Christmas music, some of the songs that we sang earlier, thankful for the familiar warmth of the decorations and lights, lights which kind of, in my house at least, have multiplied this year. I guess maybe kind of as a little bit of a, an outlet for some of that anxiety or nervous energy. Right? just kind of keep putting up more and more lights around the house. Um, I'm thankful for Christmas candy and cookies and for those familiar flavors and smells that kind of can transport us back to Christmas's past, maybe to better memories. Even thankful for the predictability of Christmas movies, now more than ever. I mean, I don't have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow, which has always been true, but I know what's going to happen in that Christmas movie, right? To that hyper-focused, career-driven lead character on the screen, he is going to have his world turned upside down, or she's going to finally see somehow through some events what really matters isn't all the external signs of success or wealth, but as Stephen Curtis Chapman put it, Christmas is all in the heart. That's right. It's beautifully predictable because it's beautifully true, right? What really matters in life are the relationships we have with the people around us. Time spent with family and with friends, that's what makes this Christmas season so special to us. But it's also what makes this season so difficult for so many. This year, with traditional large family gatherings threatened by the pandemic, but every year with bittersweet memories of loved ones who are no longer here to celebrate with us. So yes, there can be a superficial kind of sentimentality to all the Christmas movies and music and lights and all the commercialization of it all. It can be a little much, but there's also a reason all of that works in our lives, that it connects to us in some way. And it's the true reason that we celebrate Christmas. Each of us are made in the image of God for a relationship with Him and with one another. We long to be fully known and to be fully loved. And so, yes, some of those Christmas movies can be a little bit cheesy, but we gather around the TV to watch them in part because they point us to the priority of the people in our lives. And that's a priority we see in our passage this morning, as well as more broadly as we've kind of gone through the entire Old Testament story of how God was at work in the world then. One of the things we saw last week with Daniel as he was cast into the lion's den was that God's people, they were at that time in exile. After their repeated rebellion, despite God's countless warnings, the temple, the city, and their homes were destroyed. The people were taken into captivity in Babylon. 
But as Jonas pointed out to us last week, that wasn't God washing his hands of his people and turning his back on them. It was God working through the opposition they faced for their good and for his glory. In fact, the events of Daniel chapter 6 really aren't all that far from the time when King Cyrus of Persia began to allow the exiled people to return to Jerusalem, to begin to rebuild the temple. The temple was rebuilt, it was rededicated, and then Ezra, a scribe of the law, returned to Jerusalem to teach the law of God to the people whose heritage had been scattered just as they were. And then comes the book of Nehemiah. Just a little bit of word association for you. When you hear the name Nehemiah in the context of the scriptures, what comes to mind next? Nothing. Okay. Daniel and the lion's den, right? Nehemiah rebuilt what? The wall, right? That's what we think of when we think of the book of Nehemiah. And that book opens with reports that the wall of Jerusalem was in disrepair. It remained broken down years after the people had begun to return to Jerusalem. And that report, when it came to Nehemiah, it grieved him. And he begins to pray and to fast. And then he makes this risky request to the king that he would be able to return to Judah to rebuild the wall. That request was granted, and so Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, not just with the permission of the king, but with the authority of the king and the resources of the king, because God's hand was upon him. And they started there then to rebuild the wall, and they continued in spite of opposition they faced. And amazingly, they were able to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem in just 52 days. What had been in ruins for decades was rebuilt in just 52 days, a remarkable testimony to the power of God at work through the obedience of his people. And so we hear Nehemiah, we think, wall. The wall was rebuilt in record time in the face of opposition. That's the story of Nehemiah, right? But it's really just the first half of the story of Nehemiah. The temple was rebuilt. The walls were rebuilt. Yes, all the structures were in place. It looked as if Jerusalem was rebuilt, restored. But listen to how Nehemiah ends this section of his book With the completion of the wall in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 4, it says, The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Everything looked good from the outside. Everything looked right. All appearances were that the work was finished. But that's when Nehemiah points us to God's priority in his day and in ours. It's his people. Big city they had, nice wall, but there weren't very many people there, it says. And the ones there had no houses to live in. So as great as and important as the wall was, the lives of God's people remained in disrepair. And that's where Nehemiah turns his attention next. Chapter 7 is one of those long list of names that as we come to it in our Bible reading plan, we're tempted just to kind of jump past it and to skip over it. But again, the list of names in Nehemiah chapter 7 points us to the priority of people. Because every single name, every single number represents a person created in God's image and with a purpose. Yes, God was interested in rebuilding the structures, the temple, the wall, but he was and is most interested in rebuilding people for his glory and our good. And that's what he does here in Nehemiah. It's what he would do in our lives today if we will look at the blueprint that's laid out here in Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. And so, Four building blocks we're going to find in Nehemiah 8 and 9. Let's just start reading in verse 1 of chapter 8. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe 
to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand and what, what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Heshem, Hezbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. First, we see God rebuilds his people when we read his word. Just look at what happens here in Nehemiah. They gather into the square. Uh, based on what was said in the chapter before, we can say probably 50,000 strong of them gathered in this square, and they call for Ezra to bring out the law of Moses, which he does. He stands on this platform that they had built just for this purpose, showing us that it's not insignificant to build structures that aid in the hearing and understanding of God's word. The rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall, those were not bad things either. But it says that they stood on this platform and he read from the law from early morning until midday. He just opens up the book. And when he opened the book, it says all the people stood up and the reading of the word was heard by all these people. The reading of God's word was not just a transitional element in the corporate worship of God's people. It was the main event, right? It was what they gathered around, six hours worth of standing and sitting and listening to the word of God read. They waited with eager anticipation so that when the book was open, they stood to their feet. They added their voices to the blessing that Ezra offered, saying, amen, amen, lifting their hands. They stood, but then it says what next? Then they bowed their heads with their faces to the ground. That was their reaction, just to hearing the word of God read. If there's wonder in the sights and sounds of the Christmas season, but that's just a shadow of the sense of awe and wonder we see here in the lives of God's people. Their posture before the reading of God's word and their attention as Ezra stood and read for six straight hours. It's not the posture of people who are merely receiving information. Right? You don't stand at attention and bow down and worship 
when someone stands up to read to you from a textbook. And I don't say that to speak disparagingly of textbooks or education, because love learning, love school, I'm kind of a little bit of a nerd, actually. But there's a difference in how we receive information and how we receive the revelation of God. What prompted their crowding into the square and their construction of this platform, their standing, and then their bowing down was their understanding of what it meant to hear the word of God. As Ezra began reading, at the beginning, presumably, of the law of Moses, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. They weren't there merely to be informed, and they weren't there just to be entertained. Their posture points us to their deeply held conviction that the words they were hearing were the very words of God words that were breathed out by the very same God who breathed life into their bodies. God rebuilds his people when we read his word. What happened there in verses 7 and 8 is hopefully what happens as we gather to hear God's word. Ezra was standing up and reading, but there were others scattered throughout the crowd, helping the people understand what was being read. Verse 8 says, they read from the book for the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Whenever we open the word of God, the goal For any of us, as we share with somebody else, it's never to show off our knowledge, whether it's me standing in this pulpit or we're in life group or we're sharing with somebody, a coworker or friend or family member about who Jesus is and what he's done. The goal is never for people to look at God's word and to listen to us and say, how did they come up with that? I'll never be able to understand that. The goal is that we would open God's word together. And as we share together, yes, we're going to benefit from one another's different perspectives. But in the end, the word of God means what it means. It means what he intended for it to mean so that as I preach or teach or you share or teach or preach, the word of God should be more clearly understood by those who hear us. People shouldn't look and say, where did they get that? But as they look at the text, they should hear us and say, oh, okay, yeah, now I see. I see where that is. God rebuilds our lives when we read his word. Just look at how the people respond to the six-hour marathon reading of Scripture, probably not how we might expect. It doesn't say they fell asleep. It says as they heard the words of the law, they were weeping, weeping, overcome with emotion. And we'll see why that is in a few minutes. But Nehemiah and Ezra told the people, this isn't the time for that. It's not a time for mourning or for weeping. It's a time for celebration and joy and feasting. They were to eat and drink and share with one another because it was a holy day. Kind of a quick interruption to the action here. Just ask you a question. Over the time they spent there in the square, six hours of Ezra standing and reading the word of God, what changed in the lives of those people and their circumstances? Were their homes rebuilt? No, their homes were not rebuilt. There was no rebuilding of the economy. There were no streets suddenly teeming with people. What happened was God was rebuilding their lives, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. What changed was verse 12. We see it. What changed was their hearts because they understood the words that were declared to them. When the people understood it, when they grasped what God was saying in his word, what he was revealing about who he is and who they were, they responded with joyful celebration. That's what worship is. Worship, it's the purpose of our lives, but the word of God is always the foundation of our worship. We have joy and we celebrate in response to who God has revealed himself to be, not who we might wish him to be. Our praise, our songs are powerful, not because we have extremely talented musicians, although we do, but because we're singing in response to who God is and who he's revealed himself 
to be in his word. Our praises are powerful because they correspond to the grace and glory of God who rebuilds his people when we read his word. Not just talking about reading for information, we're talking about a reading that leads to transformed lives, personal encounter with the God who speaks and reveals himself in his word. Second building block, God rebuilds his people when we remember his goodness. Remember his goodness. So here's the order of what's happening, right? They gather, they hear the word, then they spread out in celebration. We see how the word leads them to worship. But then on day two, verse 13 says, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had gathered, who had returned from the captivity, made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. God is rebuilding his people here as they... Remember his goodness. They're continuing to read and continuing just to study God's word. And they come to this part that prescribed the festival, the Feast of Booths, which was a festival God had commanded in order to commemorate the time that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness. They were supposed to gather materials, construct these tents or booths to stay in so that they would remember the time that they were wandering in the wilderness with no home, time though when God provided, protected, and guided his people. This group of people who had returned from exile, they heard God's command read, and they had the audacity to think that they should follow God's commands. We're told even though they were the first ones to do it since the time of Joshua. So here are God's people. They're returning to the land he promised them, returning from exile, and they're remembering that God had fed the people when they were in the wilderness. They're remembering that God had protected them as they wandered through the wilderness. They're remembering that he gave them the land as he had promised. And if he can do it then, then he can do it now. The Feast of Booths was a reminder of the goodness of God. And we see once again how this is rebuilding the people. Once again, it's reshaping their hearts. It says in verse 17, they all made booths, they lived in them, and there was very great rejoicing. Rejoicing because they listened to the word of God and slept in tents for seven days straight. The joy and excitement, it seems to be universal throughout the people, which is amazing to me because there had to be some in the group, I would think, who weren't big fans of going camping. I know some of you might be campers. I know some in our online audience probably are, and really glamping is probably a better description of what most of us do, but I'm not big on camping, personally. I like to go hiking. I like to be outside, but I don't like to sleep outside. There's a certain level of comfort that I enjoy and appreciate modern amenities and things like that, which I'm sure is 
shattering this image that I project of the rugged outdoorsman, but point is this, remembering God's goodness, remembering God's goodness produced unity among God's people. They may have had different opinions on camping and maybe a whole host of other things, but they were submitting to the word of God together. And when they submitted to God's word together, they found unity. And in that unity, they found joy. Because this wasn't just a camping trip. God was rebuilding his people as they remembered his goodness. For the Israelites, it was remembering in this moment when their lives were in disrepair, that God had delivered his people through similar situations, worse situations before. They're remembering that remembering it filled them with joy. It fueled their appetite for God's word. For us, though, when we remember God's goodness, what are we remembering? Or what are we recalling? Valley Creek Baptist Church was first formed in the late 1800s. That was over 120 years ago. And over the last 120 years, just think of what God has done. Thousands of lives impacted by the members of this church, thousands of lives transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ to save sinners and to give us eternal life. Not just here in Hardin County, even although we see God's goodness here, but the missionaries sent around the world, mission teams that have traveled around the world, God is good. If we were just to get specific here at this campus at South Wilson, some of you have been here at this campus going on two years now, You've seen Satan oppose, but haven't you also seen God's goodness? If you were part of that initial launch, just think back to how God provided and led in those months leading up to that day. If you haven't been here as long, I'm not trying to diminish uh, you or leave you out because your story is also a testimony to God's goodness of how he has worked through the faithfulness of his people and in your life, in our lives, to draw us here together as a vital part of his family. And so we might have taken some hits corporately, some of you individually, but here we are able today to remember God's goodness and to trust that his glory will be proclaimed through this congregation. This might be a little bit of a tangent, but as we think about remembering God's goodness, one of the things that helps me to do that more than anything else is just to sing the old hymns of the faith that we so often sing together. The song, some of them we sang this morning, those Christmas songs. Others I think of when we sing Victory in Jesus. I don't hear just the people around me singing, but I also can hear my grandparents singing that song. Or as we sing, It is Well with My Soul, maybe you hear a dear brother or sister in Christ who was able to sing those words with abiding joy to the very end of their days on earth. Or when we sing Joy to the World, or hundreds of other hymns that were written by. Isaac Watts, we are joining our voices to believers who have been singing those songs for hundreds of years. And just in doing that, we can remember the goodness of God, how he's kept his promises. He was keeping his promises to his people here in Nehemiah's day. He kept his promises to Israel. He ultimately sent Jesus to save us from our sins so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. God rebuilds his people as we read his word and as we remember his goodness. He always keeps his promises. Two more points this morning. 
little more quickly as we close. We won't go for six hours straight this morning. God's word, God's goodness, they're the foundation upon which God rebuilds our lives from the brokenness of sin and rebellion and the destructive power of sin in the world. Next two points kind of focus a little bit more on our response. How do we respond to God's word? How do we respond to his goodness in our lives? We see third, God rebuilds our lives when we repent of sin. As we move into chapter nine, we're still here at the same point in Israel's history, the same month. All the people, though, they're assembled once again, but the tone has shifted in their gatherings. Instead of celebration and feasting, we see them mourning and fasting. They've got dirt on their heads. They've seen the glory and the goodness of God. They were then led to repentance, glimpsing the holiness of God and remembering the grace of God. The people, they didn't feel affirmed to continue in their sin and continue in their rebellion. Instead, they saw the darkness of their sin in contrast to the holiness of God. And their response here is what Paul tells us God intends for us in Romans 2.4. He asks, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's a different context, but Paul tells us God's kindness and mercy and patience toward us is meant to lead us to repent. Repentance is when we turn our hearts from sin and toward God. It's part of what he's doing to repair and to rebuild our lives. Once again, we see this extended reading of God's word in Nehemiah chapter 9. Verses 2 and 3 say, The Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. This time they read for three hours, and then they confessed their sin and their faith, and they worshiped for another three hours after that. The Levites, they called everyone to join in praising the name of the Lord. And then we see this weighty confession really just laid out as they walk through confessing that God is the Holy One, the maker of all things, that he's the God of Abraham who keeps his promises. But then they just start going down this list, this pattern that we see of how God would be faithful to his people, always keeping his promises, but they would rebel against him time and time again. God would restore them. They would rebel. God would restore them. They would rebel. He would deliver them, but they would rebel. They're going down this list in great detail saying, God, you are faithful. But then in verse 16, right, they say, they and our fathers acted presumptuously, stiffened their neck, did not obey your commandments. They're clear, clear-minded about the reality of their situation, about why they're in this situation. They start laying out all the details of all the ways they, their ancestors had failed to keep their word, to keep their commitments to the Lord. Verse 17, though, we find why they're able to confess those things, why they're able to repent What's drawn them in is this, verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Though they time and time again turned their back on God, he never turned his back on his people. Verse 31, after generations of rebellion, it says, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. And I think verse 33 sums it all up, really sums up even the song that we sang just a moment ago. Verse 33 ends with this, you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. 
They saw the chasm their sin had opened up between themselves and their God, as do we. As Paul wrote, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God rebuilds our lives, though, restores us. He doesn't turn his back on us. He doesn't turn away from us and walk away from us and leave us on our own. He rebuilds our lives when we repent of our sin. And that begins with our confession, our agreement with God about the nature of our sin, about what we have done to turn from him. And so this morning, that's where we start. What is it in your life that you need to confess to the Lord today? Maybe it's an attitude of your heart or a grudge you've been holding or contempt that's festering or pride that's been simmering beneath the surface. Maybe this morning it's your words that have been more effective in tearing others down than in building others up. Or maybe it's your actions. Maybe it's something that started small or has started small, but it doesn't stay that way. Because once we place ourselves in the place of authority over God and his word, even in the smallest thing, it's only a matter of time before sin spreads. And so he calls us to confess our sin to him and to repent, to turn from it and to turn back to him because he's a gracious and merciful God waiting for us to return, waiting to forgive us and to show grace and mercy and kindness. He acts faithfully though we act wickedly. He rebuilds our lives when we repent of our sin. And finally, finally, God rebuilds our lives when we renew our commitment to him. Repentance and faith are really two sides of the same coin. If we're going to turn away from our sin, then that only leaves one place for us to turn, to turn to him, to turn to God in faith. Nehemiah 9.38, moving into chapter 10, that's what we see the people of God doing. They say, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. As the people turned from their sin, they renewed their commitment to live according to the law God had given them. And they conclude that in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 39, by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Today, today, whether you're worshiping in person or online, this is our call, this is our invitation to renew our commitment to the Lord to say together, we will not neglect the house of our God. To say that is to renew our commitment to the Lord and to renew our commitment to his people because Paul would tell us through his letter to the church at Ephesus that each of us are members of the household of God. All those cheesy Christmas movies that we watch, they're onto something, or at least they're after something. They all come back to the priority of people because we're created for community. What they don't always recognize is that there's another relationship even more important than the ones we have with the people around us, the relationship with the one who is building us all together into the household of God. As we look forward to, as we look forward to the coming weeks, as we look forward to a new year, I think it can be tempting for us to ask kind of how can we restore some of what it feels like we've lost over this past year? How can we get back to some sense of normalcy, right? We can be in a 
hurry to return to normal in our lives, in our church. Let's just get the pandemic over and behind us so we can all be back together. We can have our calendar full of programs and events and all the things that we enjoy doing. But what if, what if like the Israelites returning from exile, what if we were to rebuild all that, but our hearts and our lives remained in disrepair? What if God has slowed us down so that we would have more time to read his word and to pray and to hear from him? What if God's let us come to the end of ourselves so that we can remember his goodness and his faithfulness to provide? As the pressure of these days has revealed maybe some sinful attitudes and actions in our hearts, then what if that is God's patient kindness drawing us to repentance? Look, I get it. We all want things to be back to normal, right? But the good news this morning is that our God's able to do far more than just return to normal. We're ready to return to normal, right? At this moment, that's the best thing that we can imagine. But God's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And so this morning, let's not just try to rebuild what we can, but let's allow him to rebuild our hearts, to rebuild our lives as we read his word, remember his goodness, repent of our sin, and renew our commitment to him. Heavenly Father, today we thank you and we praise you that you are a God who speaks. Lord, even in that, but we pray that you would help us not to take for granted what we have in your word, that you have personally revealed yourself to us that you have spoken to us, Lord, though we have, though we have strayed and rebelled and sinned against you, Lord, you have revealed through your word the plan by which we might come to know your grace and your mercy, that we might be restored and our lives might be rebuilt. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness, Lord, your provision in our lives as we look back even through grief and pain and difficult days, Lord. We see how you have continued to to be with us, Lord, how you have continued to see us through, Lord, even though we might not understand always what has been, what has happened, or we might not always understand what you're doing, Lord. Lord, we trust that you are with us and that you are good. And we trust, God, that You are a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to to see what you're revealing in our lives, to see what you're revealing through your word, maybe about us and about our hearts, about the sin that, that resides there, Lord. And we pray that you would help us today to turn from our sin and to turn to you in faith. Or perhaps there are some here, Lord, who have, who have strayed from, from your way, Lord, but today you're calling us to return to you, Lord, to renew a commitment to you and to follow after 
the plan and the purpose that you have for our lives, Lord, knowing that you have not given up on us, Lord, knowing that you are there ready to welcome us and to invite us and to um, restore us and to rebuild our lives. Or maybe there are some today who have never before known your grace and your mercy and your kindness, God. I pray today that you would help us to to know the, the hope that you have for us in Jesus, Lord, that they would turn from sin and place their faith in you for the first time. I pray, Lord, that collectively we would say, as the people of Israel did in Nehemiah's day, we will not neglect the house of our God. Help us to be united in the faith. Help us to be united in the mission that you have given us as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.